I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1. Today's episode, Safe House. At the age of 15, while attending his great-uncle Saul's shiva, the boy wandered into a bedroom off the living room where the coats of his relatives were piled in a great mountain atop the bed. As a child, he enjoyed rutting in such piles, cocooning himself in the furs and overcoats that held the familiar smell of cigar smoke and boiled meat. Safe inside, he'd listen to the yelling and laughter from the living room, if not exactly forgotten, at least free from scrutiny. Alone in the bedroom, he was now tempted to execute a nosedive right in, but he knew he was too old for that. And he could have used such comfort too, as filled as he was with thoughts of death. His mother, believing the boy sad about his great-uncle Saul, a soft-hearted man who played got your nose with him well into his teens, had grabbed hold of him that morning as he moped past her in the living room, trying to scoop him onto her lap as she did when he was small. Are you nuts, he'd said, brushing her off. But I'm sad when you're sad, she'd said. Deal with it, he'd said. No, it wasn't just one person dying sadness that he was feeling. It was everyone dying sadness. Or, more specifically, he himself dying sadness. Seeing Saul lowered into the earth reminded the boy that his time would come too. And with that awareness came a tidal wave feeling of what's the use? Of school, grades, getting out of bed. When we all knew, let's face it, that the whole thing was a scam. That we were all going to the same place. No place. This seemed so obvious to him that he didn't understand how it wasn't all anyone ever thought about. What else could there be to think about? The feeling had been creeping up on him for about a year. Eating a Sunday at the zoo, he would find himself wondering just what was the point of eating Sundays at the zoo, when one day he'd be dead. It was while the boy stood staring at the pile of coats that the rabbi, who'd led the funeral service, entered the room. Death is a natural part of life, the rabbi said, apparently coaxed by the boy's mother. The point of life is to illuminate the world, to reveal God's spirit in all things. What do you say we let the Almighty worry about the rest? All the boy's father ever wanted to talk about were stamps and collector's coins, and his mother, honeydew melons, and how she never seemed able to find a ripe one. And so he was excited for the chance to talk about deep spiritual stuff like death. Sure, the rabbi, bearded and dressed in black, looked like a bit player in a Sadie Bronfman production of Tevia the Milkman, 
but at least he was acknowledging the obvious, not like the rest of the sleepwalkers the boy was surrounded by. I don't get the whole God thing, the boy said. It just doesn't make sense. If he's there, why play possum? It is our faith that makes us strong, said the rabbi. And if we knew anything for sure, there would be no faith. The two sat on the edge of the bed and talked for almost an hour. It was soon after that that the boy began showing up to the rabbi's temple for Sabbath. Afterwards, he'd go to the rabbi's house where, over chicken, they discuss the nature of God, reality, and the human soul. Is there an afterlife, the boy asked. When we die, we become a part of God, a part of the oneness, answered the rabbi. To the boy, that did not sound as much fun as floating around invisible watching teenage girls strip for gym class, but it was better than nothing. So God created the universe, the boy said. And so, now what's he up to? Permanent vacation? His creation is continuous and ongoing, the rabbi said. God creates the light around us, the air, the flow of blood through our veins. He is creating at this very moment the very food at the end of your fork. The boy did not know if he believed all this, but the feeling such conversation gave him, the mood it created, would become something he'd chase all his life, with drink in dark bar rooms, with women and with men. No matter where he was, such talk turned the world into a cozy, well-lit living room. It kept him from growing disinterested and laying his head down on the bar, only to wake up on the curb. It made him feel less like a man who was bottoming out and more like someone on a quest for truth in all its forms. But just then, he was only a boy and was simply happy for the attention. More than any other topic that he and the rabbi spoke of, the boy was most captivated by tales about the leader of the rabbi's sect, a man known affectionately as Der Leib, the lion. There were so many stories, like how he was a biblical scholar by the time he could crawl, how he could speak 50 languages, remember the names of people he'd only met briefly decades earlier, how he could drink a whole bottle of whiskey and walk away sober. The president called him to wish him a happy birthday when he turned 80, the rabbi said. Who gets such treatment? There was one man in the congregation, a nervous type, who prayed while twisting his beard, who told the boy that he'd once gone to see Derleib speak and witnessed red laser beams shoot from his eyes. Did anyone else see? The boy asked. Only me, the man said. The boy pumped the rabbi and anyone else for stories of Derleib's miracles, or even stuff that wasn't miracles per se, but still pretty cool. Could Derleib outthink Einstein? Out-arm wrestle Muhammad Ali? Could he punch a hole through someone's face while never losing his place in the ancient text he was reading? The boy's parents weren't thrilled when he announced his plans to go with the rabbi to New York to see Der Leib give a speech. But in the interest of his cultural education, and with no work necessary on their part, they acquiesced. Der Leib lived in a section of Brooklyn called Sheepshead Bay, and the rabbi and the boy drove there from Montreal, stopping along the way to play mini-golf and ride go-karts, 
All things the boy's father, a man happiest when napping with a fat Leon Uris novel spread across his chest, had a low tolerance for. Deleb was to give a speech in the synagogue where he preached. The synagogue was connected to his house, which he accessed through a tunnel. As they rode there, the boy had more questions about the tunnel than anything else. Was it carpeted? Underground? How deep underground? It made the boy think of Batman. When Derleib entered the Great Hall, hundreds of men stood back to make a path. It reminded the boy of Moses and the Red Sea. Derleib shuffled through, stooped and quick, camouflaged by his prayer shawl. At the altar, he led services, and when he was done, everyone took their place on long benches, shoulder to shoulder, jam-packed, and waiting for him to speak. And speak he did for three straight hours, in Yiddish, a language in which, other than schmuck, putz, kugel, and canadal, the boy knew not a word. Don't worry about what you know and what you don't know, said the rabbi seated beside him. Just to be in the same room as Derleib is enough to absorb the divine. After speaking brilliantly on a wide array of religious topics, none of which the boy understood, tiny plastic shot glasses filled with sweet red wine were handed out. Since they were so small and part of a traditional ritual, the rabbi didn't see the harm in letting the boy have one too. It worked like this. Each person stood with their cup raised, waiting for Derleib to toast them. With each person, and there were hundreds, he made individual eye contact, nodded his head, and murmured a quick, L'chaim, to life. And once you received your toast, you sat back down. Derleib started at it with what appeared to be no rhyme or reason. A few toasts here, a few toasts there. Toast one corner, rotate and catch a few over on the other side of the hall. It was like swatting flies. But who knew? Maybe he was adhering to some pattern that only a spiritual man such as himself could comprehend. Derleib tirelessly worked the room for what seemed like almost an hour, until almost everyone was seated. The boy, though, still stood. As the numbers of the standing dwindled, an idea entered the boy's head. What if he traveled all this way only to be forgotten? The boy could have stayed home for that. Of course, as he grew older, being forgotten would become routine. Some days would be spent wandering streets as though he were nothing more than car exhaust, and he would learn to live with that kind of thing, as everyone does. But just then, standing with his tiny cup in the air, being forgotten felt formidable, existential, the logical extension of all the loneliness in his soul. It stood to reason that not just Derleib, but God himself could forget about you too, and you could wind up crushed in the cogs and wheels of the universe's machinery. Maybe that's what death was, God eventually forgetting about you. Soon there were only a dozen or so left standing, and the boy began to worry that it was not mere forgetfulness. Maybe it was being consciously ignored, excluded. Maybe Derleib, who appeared to pretty much know all, had built-in antennae for doubters and was never going to offer him a toast. The boy felt his feet grow wet as he imagined all the eyes in the room burning into him.
If he looks over in my general vicinity, the boy decided, I'll just sit right down like he looked at me, like I really thought he looked at me. Sure, it's a terrible thing to do, but I'll deal with all that afterwards. Maybe he'd even dedicate his life to great religious piety, but at the moment, his main priority was getting his behind on that bench and not being humiliated. When it came down to a half dozen, the boy's anxiety knew no bounds. Maybe it wasn't just his lack of spiritual belief. Maybe Derlei knew about stuff much worse, stuff that the boy himself only suspected but couldn't know for sure. Maybe Derlaib saw right through him, straight to his crummy soul. Eventually, he would be the only person left standing in the massive hall, and he would be lectured in Yiddish for hours on end. I'm sorry, he'd say, I don't understand. No comprende? Or worse, maybe Derlaib would never acknowledge him, and he'd be left standing like an idiot forever. There were only three of them left when Derleib finally put him out of his misery. L'chaim, Derleib murmured under his breath. The boy sat down, his legs wobbly, and with trembling fingers brought the wine to his lips and sucked it from the tiny cup with a quickness and force that surprised him. He would later recall the moment as the first time he'd ever felt drunk. Later, he would say that inside that little plastic cup was where he'd met the best friend he never knew he had. But just then, it felt like he'd simply been touched by God. On the car ride back to Montreal, the rabbi drummed on the steering wheel while singing Niggins, inspirational tunes, while the boy pretended to sleep. When the car pulled up outside his home, he used his house key to let himself in. He could hear the TV playing upstairs, but he went down to the basement where he played video games until dusk. A few months after his return, the boy started dating his first girlfriend, an Israeli girl, and his synagogue visits fell away to almost never. The Israeli's mother was a single parent, and she was frequently out of town for work. She allowed the boy to sleep over when she was away, and she kept a well-stocked liquor cabinet that she never seemed to notice was constantly dwindling. The boy would drink of the cabinet with great gusto, and when he was feeling just right, like he was at the center of a massive pile of fur coats, like all the world smelt of old books and home-cooked food, like his belief or lack of belief felt all the same, When all that mattered was the booze flowing through him, he would hold the little Israeli's face in his hands and talk and talk until falling asleep in her arms. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention 
but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. There's nothing more important than feeling safe. It's the only way a person can really thrive. Yeah, but, you know, according to mom, you've been taking this home safety thing uh, a little far. You can't take anything too far, Johnny. <laughs> I, th- I think you, I think there's certain things you could take too far. I mean, mom's worried you're getting a bit obsessive about it. What Should- obsessive? I'm just making sure the place is totally safe for my grandchildren. Dad, I mean, you know, that that's fair enough, but I mean, mom said that that the other day you were out of the house and she got a headache and she went to the medicine cabinet to get some aspirin and you you would put a combination lock on it? What is she talking about? I gave it a combination. Is it? This can't be true. She told me that you bubble wrap the toilet. It germ-proofs it. I mean, it's a little out there, don't you think? Out there? There's nothing out there. Nothing that goes out there. Dad, she says that you, you've installed uh, smoke detectors in every room? Yeah. And, and, and you're constantly changing the batteries, like, every few days? Absolutely. How, how many smoke detectors do you have in the house now? I have two in the bedroom. I have one in the, uh, in the computer room. I don't know, maybe 14, 15. You can't be too safe. Okay, and and next time you sit down to a steak, how do you intend to eat it without any knives in the house, Dad? Mom says that you you packed up all the knives and put them in the... I carry around a knife in my pocket, and I eat my steak. Cutlery in your pocket. Yes. Anyway, I took these utensils, and Mm -hmm. I put them in the basement. Right. When they're 18, I'll take them out. When your grandkids are 18. Till 18. I want to be safe, in a safe house. Because otherwise, a 16-year-old's going to, might harm themselves with a knife. Yes, they don't have brains yet. And, and speaking of food, you, you, you give them cold soup? You're afraid what? That yeah, they gonna... could burn their palate, their tongue. They could have blisters. And when blisters burst, they could have an infection. Who needs that? And you put on safety goggles for them when they're eating citrus fruits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because if you, the citric squirts, it gets in the eyes. It, it's acid. A citric is that citric acid. You ever hear the expression? Yes, I've heard citric of it. Citric acid. It yeah, can burn it's... your eyeballs. Come on, Johnny. You know better than that. Safety first. A home is the place where you should feel safest and the most relaxed. suggestions for notes to leave behind in the place where you just house at. This is the desk where early morning productivity was achieved. This is the mirror where, when late morning productivity dropped off, I stared at my face and assured myself that no one looks good in sunglasses. This is the couch where I flipped through a fashion magazine and saw how everyone looks good in sunglasses. This is where I made myself feel better by judging you for having a fashion magazine subscription. This is the counter with the single-serve coffee machine where I most envied your life. This is the dark, warm spot in the closet where I most envied your cat's life. This is the bathroom wall 
through which I listen to your neighbor play piano. This is the bowl that looks like it was your grandmother's, where I ate cashews and then rearranged the remaining cashews to make it look like I hadn't. This is the shower glass where I traced guesses about your neighbor's name. This is where I felt closest to you because I knew half the people in the photos on your fridge. This is where I wondered why I wasn't in a photo on your fridge. This is where your cat was indifferent to how much cable I was watching. This is the dresser where I compared the cuteness of your baby pictures to the cuteness of mine. This is the bedroom closet where I tried on three of your dresses. This is the part of the living room where the light hit in such a way that reminded me of my first apartment. This is where I looked up my old college roommate online while cooking dinner. This is where I spoke with a French accent to the delivery guy after not speaking all day. This is the quilt in the trunk at the foot of your bed where I wondered whether I'd ever be able to have a family of my own since I didn't have the kind of family where handmade quilts got passed down. This is where I caught the last five minutes of a movie my sister and I used to watch when we were kids and thought about calling to tell her I missed her, but then a new movie started. This is the pile of mail where I was tempted to read what appeared, judging by the hand-drawn hearts on the envelope and the wax seal, to be a love letter addressed to you. This is the old-fashioned rotary dial phone where a fight was picked with my boyfriend about why he doesn't write me letters with seals and hearts. This is where I set down my bag after returning from the coffee place you recommended, where I ran into the last person I expected to see, the person I always want to see most. This is where I laid on the floor and replayed the sound of his voice, the smile on his face, as he asked after you. Oh, hey, Howard. How, how are you doing? Hey, man. How's your week so far? Good? Pretty good. I mean, kind of uneventful. Uh... I need a safe house. Why do you need a safe house? Everyone needs a safe house sometimes. I've never needed a safe house. You've never been in trouble? No. Well, I've, I mean, I've never needed to, like, hide out someplace until they... You the... never need to lay low. Why do you need a safe house, Howard? You know, I'm not going to tell you for the same reasons I don't tell you about the other times I need a safe house. Because you're not cool. Oh, I, I'm not cool. No, you're not a cool cat. You're very excitable. You're liable to get me in trouble, get the heat back on me. All right, so why do you need a safe house? All right, well, Bruce, my pug, mm -hmm. is basically uh, in a very formative stage of his life right now. Which is, this, would, this is what would be his school years if he were a little boy. Which he's not. But if he were a little boy, these but would he's be not. his school years. He's not. I want him to have advantages that I didn't have growing up. Like what? What are you thinking of? Like love and dog toys being told no. And? I've been going a bit overboard, I guess, is what people are telling me. Well, people are, t how? They're calling me a helicopter parent. You're a helicopter mom now. I'm a helicopter master, would be, I guess, the right, I'm trying to think for a dog, I'm I the master, right? So, you know, I, I signed them up for doggy school and a few extracurricular activities, swimming lessons, Italian classes. Why would a pug need uh, to know how to speak Italian? 
well, not to speak Italian, but to understand Italian. He'd know how to sit and roll over and give paw in Italian. Uh-huh. And that's, that's important, right? You'd want to... Well, he likes meatballs. Oh, I see. Anyway, so I was at the dog park this morning. I uh-huh. went down with Bruce. Mm-hmm. I was basically trying to show Brucey how to drink out of a dog bowl the right way. One, how two, does he three, drink out of his bowl? It's that... like sideways and it tips the water in the bowl. It's just to be taught right, that's all. And and how did you and how is he being taught this? I did it. I did it the way you have to do. I got down on all fours, stuck my face right in the bowl. No, you right didn't. there. I showed him. You didn't drink. Lap, lap, lap. There's a there's a pattern. You did not get on your all fours and drink out of a dog. I bowl. most certainly did. You're sir. not embarrassed to, to to act like a dog. I think a dog. I was acting like a master. That... I was showing the dog how to drink the water out of the bowl. Right. Anyway, this wise guy comes out to me, but he pulls mm-hmm. in a snack, a dog snack. He throws it on the ground, and he musses up my hair. So I stand up, and I brush off my pants. I'm like, excuse me, is there a problem? I'm teaching my dog how to drink out of a bowl. So he goes, oh, what are you do next? Are you going to teach him how to lick his tuchus? And at that moment, I get right into ninja mode. Uh-huh. And I just reach to my back pocket, pull up my wallet like a shuriken, like a, like a throwing star, and I kind of knife hand throw it, and it goes spiraling Your right wallet. Oh, am I going to throw the sandwich I have in my hand? No. i got to go for what I have. You had a sandwich in your hand this whole time with the... Slow motion, dubstep style. Back, right into his throat, right into the Adam's apple. Could have been a better shot. The guy goes down one knee, boom, right into dog poop. So I grabbed Bruce, and I just ran the hell out of there and fled. I just got well, out of there really fast. Well, I'm glad to hear that it didn't get messier than it, than it could have. He was a big guy. So the trouble is, I guess that in my hurry to get out of there, I forgot the wallet. I see. So you're worried he has your wallet with your address and your ID and all that so he knows where you live. All right, so fine. So come and stay at my place for a while. No, you're crazy. Your, your house isn't a safe house at all. We can't stay at your place. Why can't you stay at my place? That was your wallet that I threw at the guy. So he undoubtedly has all your information. Why did you have my wallet? Why well, I needed to do some shopping. Wait, what are you telling me? This guy knows where I live? I think we stay at my place, but it's really a pigsty right now. How, Howard, I, I'm, am I in trouble? Yeah, there's a very good chance this guy might murder you. The last thing he was saying as he was going through your wall when I was running was, I'm going to get you, Jonathan Goldstein. I, I'm in... You're dead? You're dead, man? Yeah, you're a dead man, Jonathan Goldstein. Yeah. Howard, you've put me in jeopardy. Me and you, we're going to need a safe house together, which is why I was actually initially asking if you know any safe houses. I was thinking maybe the day in would be pretty nice. Mmm, I got those fried mozzarella cheese sticks. On Wiretap today, you heard Buzz Goldstein, Howard Chakowitz, and Starley Kine reading her story, House-Sitting Notes. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, Mira Burt-Wintonic, and Crystal Duhame. This week's episode of Wiretap is dedicated to Desmond, Howard's pug who recently passed away. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.